good. You've um, smartened up the office space a lot since since we last spoke to each other. At least it's, it's a lot greener. Yeah, we got some new plants straight from the Costa Rican jungle. What what are they? I, I said they looked a bit like kind of rubbery bonsais. This is a jade money plant. It's a succulent. And this, I don't know. I just pulled it out of my yard and kind of planted it. I really like the one on your right. It does look a bit like plasticine. I don't know if you've ever seen Wallace and Gromit. You know how the characters are kind of rendered. Yes, that's a British cartoon, right? Yeah, it's British. But have you have you seen it in the in the US? You ever see that long trousers episode? I've seen bits and pieces here and there, but uh, nothing particularly about long trousers. No. Oh, wrong trousers. If these oh, kind of like Frankenstein trousers. trousers that are yeah controlled by some sort of evil entity and run off with Wallace. Haven't seen that one. No. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. Sometimes with the more obscure cultural reference points, even though like. English and American people can like connect in so many ways when it gets to this kind of territory. It's just like, uh, yeah, blank. And then on your side as well, maybe. Although I don't know, I watched Futurama. Well, entertainment is the mass primary export of our country. So did you have any like favorite cartoons? Oh, well, hmm. Yeah, there was a plethora. Of course, The Simpsons, American mainstay. I didn't quite get into Futurama. I was a little done with uh the grinning work by that point um because you were older. I got into, yeah but when mtv had its run with some strange cartoons like aeon flux and the max i was into that and it was weird knowing more about myself now and like my scorpionic nature like i i, I get into that stuff uh, adult swim when it first came out aqua teen hunger force was super irreverent and odd um yeah, that, those are ones I remember most. Red and Stimpy, way ahead of its time. I look at those clips now, and it's just like horrendous. I can't believe my parents let me watch that. Oh, Is it's it... just so like graphic and grisly. Yeah, I mean, come on, they had this wrestling pro wrestler character whose head was made out of powdered toast who would perform flying butt pliers upon Stimpy the cat. It was like ass actually came apart and grabbed him midair and slammed him in the ground, like. <laughs> Interesting. Oh my god! Odd. to to see. <laughs> I mean, I guess yeah. One has to just think about yeah what values and influences these sort of mass market cartoons are are putting onto kids and what kids are exposed to today. Like I see so many yeah on the train recently. Like even like a baby had a phone that his mum was like. No. Holding holding for for like i don't know not not super baby but like kind of been older than three less than three and the the mum was like holding a like phone in front of it like playing like bejeweled getting the kids to like play bejeweled Mm. blitz i mean maybe it's good for like cognitive ability but i don't know it seemed a bit weird and i would say the harm outweighs the benefit in that case that's a whole separate topic (laughs) well you, you don't think like bejeweled blitz is good for like problem solving again harm outweighing the benefits what i'm saying i'm sure there's some cognitive development there but that game is wired to pull you in and to be yeah. addictive you know started with farmville and remember you know the early halcyon days of facebook and farmville that seems so innocuous and now look what's happening yeah it's a slippery slope i know you were saying recently <laughs> you've been really trying to be very disciplined regulated with, with your phone use I, I I tried today. I did pretty well actually compared to recently. Like over over recent weeks, it's been yeah awful, frankly. But I mean, I partly blame having an iPhone 14. You know, for a long time I had these kind of like shitty Chinese phones they sell in Mexico, and you, you can't even be on that shit for that long. So I've only had this since since you know the, uh... of the year. But yeah, it's it's. it's the, getting to pretty epic proportions of usage sometimes i have to confess hmm yeah interesting i wonder what it'd be like if we never moved on from the flip phone i did enjoy my old razor for many years but but how's your how's your um you know phone use going we spoke a couple months about it but it, it sounded like you're on quite a good track I feel pretty good about it. I've been on perpetual do not disturb mode for years now. So I'm never hijacked by notifications. 
but I, I still have a compulsive tendency to pick up my phone as a way to bridge the gap between things or to give myself a rest during something. So I'm trying to get better at that. My goal is to only be checking messages three times a day, you know, in the morning, in the afternoon, and at night. I think that's enough to keep any important conversation moving. And of course, I have some contacts who are like really important. So I star them and as a rule that they can get through. Um, one thing I've done recently, I'm trying to do, is to also pair the checking of my messages with not sitting at my desk. I'm trying to get a lot more steps in right now because I'm working with a, a, a strength and fitness trainer to support like the dissipation of chronic body pain and to get more energy in. Not to like, you know, get big and jack, but this is more about vitality. And I'm mm -hmm. trying to get 10,000 steps in a day because of that. And I realized my benchmark is like 1,500 on the usual work day. It's pretty abysmal. So I'm like doing laps around my house. I'm like, this is so boring. I can't go for walks around here because any nearby hike is a short drive. And the road here is just terribly dangerous. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm walking laps around my house. Something I can do here is check my messages. And what if I relegate my message checking and sending to when I'm only walking around or rather vice versa. If I want to use my phone, I'm outside doing laps. That's my next hack. <laughs> so no, no, no phone checking in bed. No, I read at night and I read on my phone and sometimes I like check a message or two, but that's the nightly message checking. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. But first thing in the morning, no, I'm way past that. I don't grab at the phone when I wake up. I'm I'm pretty disciplined with that. It's you know, straight to my morning routine. And then when I get to my desk afterward, when I'm planning my day, and you know, that's why I check the messages and get things sorted out on my calendar. So what, what do you grab first thing in the morning? And what does your routine look like? Sure. Yeah, we're going to get right into something really juicy, quite literally. So you say, what's the first thing I grab for in the morning? Uh, a nice pint of my own urine which I use to put back whatever stack of supplements I'm using at the time. After that, I'll shove my face into a bowl of freezing cold water because that's a biohack. Well, I hate using that word these days. It's kind of dirty, but it's a hack for like having a, a cold plunge. You get the face freezing, you get most of the um, signals to get like the benefits of ice therapy, cold therapy. And I get into my practice, which right now I am doing a lot of work with weights i'm strengthening my body through weight training for the first time in a long time after spending years of doing yoga breath work and meditation cultivating my energetic body um, slowing down softening learning all the skills related to that but now i'm done i'm done pretending that pain like this lower back pain i've been carrying is my teacher and i think getting back into like a more physical routine is going to help integrating you know the strength training back in and that also includes spending a lot of time in the sun I have the privilege of getting to be naked out here in this little plot of land that I'm on, just soaking in like the pure Costa Rican sun. We have no electro smog out here. So a good 10 to 15 minutes is all I need and get my feet in the earth and do my practice. And then, uh, you know, depending on the day, there might be a neti pot involved or um, an enema. Now I'm just getting back from two months of being in the state. So I'm doing some deep cleansing and enemas are a daily thing right now until I feel good. And then I, I have my breakfast and I sit down and figure out what I'm doing that day. Then I check my phone, look at my computer, reach out to people. But it's like a good two or three hours before I'm looking at a screen. Amazing. There's, there's a lot we can learn from that. I mean, I had to bite my tongue a little bit, though. You said the first thing is like a bottle of urine. I mean, yeah. Tell, tell, us, a, tell us a bit more about that. Is that from like the night before or is, is that like kind of like 5 a.m. wee that you then store no. or, or do you actually go to the toilet first thing and then get the... get the get Yeah, the, the good question. So I'll start with what it is because it's still a pretty nascent topic. Even, you know, in conscious spiritual circles, people heard of it, but most of the world thinks it's absolutely bonkers. So urine therapy is what the West is calling it right now and it's revival, but it's been known as Shivambu. This is a practice that goes back to like ancient Ayurveda practice. The, the Damar Tantra, I think one of the more occulted books of yoga, speaks directly to this. There's even a whole story in there where Shiva is talking to his beloved, and I'm going to get her name wrong, so I'm going to try, about the myriad Parvati? benefits. Parvati. Yeah, the myriad benefits of urine therapy, Shivambu. And... 
he's just going on and on. He actually tells her because one day she just got like enough of him just being so on top of life and so vivacious and full of energy and power. She's like, Shiva, what is your secret? And he's like, fine, I'll tell you. I drink my pee. This is written in the texts, like, and it's more than that. It's more than ancient spiritual text. There are doctors throughout India who still practice this. So if you take that also with the proof in Western societies that urea and similar uric compounds are found in all the highest price premium skincare products, it's hard to not see that this is some kind of beneficial compound. And I like to expand into the meta, to the Aquarian view. Why would a single organ on the male or female body, or the male body in particular, produce both the most life-giving liquid and a waste product? It doesn't make any sense to produce a waste product from the same place, from the same physical pathway. It just doesn't add up, you know? So I do that every morning. It's my morning pee if i do wake up in the middle of the night for some reason and have to go and it's like close to when i wake up uh, i'll be sure to go to the kitchen and pee in the jar because you want that morning one um yeah you were kind of suggesting is- that whatever like supplement regime you've got going on at the moment like whatever vitamin tablets and stuff i guess you, you said yeah it'd be like packed with that so packed with like the excess because because i guess your body can only ingest x amount of y at any time More or less, the way to look at it is your urine is filtered blood. And what it's filtering out are the minerals, the nutrients, and the hormones you can't use at that moment. Your body has a capacity. It knows what it needs and what it doesn't. So if you keep cycling it, you end up absorbing more over time. In the morning, there are more hormones in it due to the processes you undergo in your sleep. Yeah, I was actually a peyote ceremony once and i asked the dude on on my right i I remember it vividly i asked him you know can i have a can i have a bit of water from your flask he passed me it and even though it was like steel so i couldn't feel any warmth from the inside i could kind of yeah i i noticed like a bit of steam coming up and i like put my head put my head down put my nose in it and looked over at him and he was like giggling and yeah he just peed in his flask just after the Marikame, the medicine man had kind of gone around and done like the first round, I think, of of blessings. Mm-hmm. And around that time, he said he needed a wee. And allegedly, he'd been told, you know, in previous circles, yeah, that there's a potency there and there's, yeah, medicine there, peyote medicine, like freshly picked from the desert to kind of re-ingest the mescaline would be in the urine uh-huh. and he would be a fool just to, you know, waste this stuff into the ground. I, I handed him back the flask nonetheless. <laughs> you bring up a good point. Um, Cause the alkaloids and other aspects of psychedelic medicines that are surplus will go into the urine. In fact, this knowledge is what some shamans of your <laughs> put to use. Some shamans, I think of the Siberian ones, don't quote me, I'm not an expert on this, but it's told that a lot of the Siberian shamans would pee after taking their fly agaric and give that to the participants of their ceremony. And I also heard that they would get like the young boys also to eat a lot. And then the older guys would drink the pee of the younger boys because, yeah, it's quite physically demanding. I've never eaten Amanita, but Apparently, yeah, it you know, it's really, really physically demanding, especially if you haven't I mean it's dangerous it's kind of, you know, borderline dangerous if you haven't like detoxified it, right? And then just eat <clears> it straight <throat> off the bat. That's it. Yeah. It's <laughs> funny you mention that too. <clears throat> I've got a big old amnita cap in my my freezer right now with some very specific directions on how to start microdosing it, which is how you court the journey dose. I'm a little hesitant there's some fear around it but i feel like learning how to be with this this medicine is going to be useful i mean it doesn't look that inviting it's beautiful but it's like lurid red yeah that's a danger that's danger or or provocation when it comes to fruit and women wearing lipstick well i suppose so i mean yeah women wearing lipstick yeah well 
that's mind-boggling to compare to the the fly Garrick. Well, um, I say that because we're kind of going on a bit of a tangent, but my understanding of the history of makeup is that fruits in nature, you know, they have bright red, yellow, other colors, and they entreat you to eat them because of this. That it's attractive. So women, or maybe it's men decided because men create a lot of these fashion trends for women. But they realize, oh, and in order to be attractive, I could make myself a bit brighter, like this fruit. And I mean, fruit are sex organs anyway, so there's a direct correlation there. But I'm looking at, <clears throat> it's funny because some brightly colored animals and fungus are dangerous. It's like, don't eat me. How can you properly discern what the color means, if it's good or bad? That escapes me most of the time. Yeah, I did go on a date on Saturday, actually, and she was wearing like a bright red shirt like much brighter than than this I'm wearing now and yeah had really like strong red lipstick on I mean it was definitely yeah extremely eye-catching yeah there's something about that when I see it a woman becomes more attractive I don't know if it becomes that way due to decades of programming and conditioning around what that means and who I've seen it on but it works yeah and so yeah dialing a bit back to how we know each other We've had a bit of a journey together the last like year and a half. You were my assigned one-on-one integration coach after an Ibogaine retreat that I did. And Mm -hmm. then you did another like pack of classes or sessions later in the year. And then earlier this year in March, I came and visited um, a retreat to, to interview your colleague, Zach Leary in jamaica and then we bumped into each other in denver at the maps conference uh, don't forget your visit to mount Chiripo here where i live oh that's crucial that's crucial that was yeah incredible really i mean the land up there yeah so fertile and so calm the air i i, mm. I know you said about doing a neti pot i don't know why why you need it up there i mean maybe maybe because of the altitude but when i was there it was so clear the air and actually that offset the altitude for me mm. yeah truly it's a beautiful place very clean very blessed and grateful and privileged to be here yeah but yeah we've had we've had quite the journey together since i became your integration coach yeah <laughs> so how did you how did you get into integration coaching Ooh. Well, the short version of that story is I, at one point in my healing journey with plants, went to the Amazon and was entirely mishandled and came out incredibly dysregulated, entered about a three-year stint of a spiritual emergency or dark night of the soul, whatever verbiage you prefer, Uh, went down with depression, anxiety, and neurosuicidality for almost three years. And as I started to put myself back together with some of the help from my friends, one of the tools, I would say, that helped me was community. Of course, community is the most healing tool, but this community was one that was training to become an integration coach along with me. And getting that training was an incredibly healing process and helped me gather skills and knowledge to help others avoid what I had gone through, right? Tay all this time, the wounded healer. And I had been working with psychedelics for some years before that underground quiet with my teacher. And I was already coming to the point where I was looking for a way to go fully in. And after I received my integration coaching training with being true to you, I went to visit Costa Rica to see a friend I had trained with with all intentions to go back to Berkeley, where I was living at the time, and to start my practice alongside keeping my part-time job in tech. But everything opened up for me here. This land was pure magic. In fact, a mystical aside, the two weeks I chose to be here were due to an astrology session I had with a friend here who turned me on to astrocartography for the first time. So there are certain places in the world that hold certain power for you based upon your particular makeup astrologically and costa rica was ruled by jupiter for me which is mysticism power and abundance and he said if you come to this land during these particular two weeks where you have more beneficent conjuncts in your life than you're ever going to have something profoundly mystical and magical is going to happen 
And what happened for me was a two-week vacation turning into a two-month exploration of possibility of living here. And then I just turned my back on the States. I went back within two weeks, sold everything I didn't need, came back here and just said yes to living here and also yes to doing my work as an integration coach and medicine guide full-time, not knowing how it was going to work, but trusting for the first time in my life fully in spirit. And two and a half years later, I'm thriving, doing what I love, completely taking care of myself and my needs by being on Zoom, doing integration coaching for people in the States, supporting people here in person, doing retreats with men, um, focusing on men's work and medicine work and all kinds of other possibilities and opportunities are just shoring up. It's it's perfect. Yeah, and now, and now you're on this podcast. It's just, yeah, from one incredible achievement to the next and i was in right. i was in san francisco bay like a few months ago and i, I think you made the right choice man obviously there's like parts of birth i <sighs> still are still like obviously really nice but yeah it's on it's on a pretty downward trajectory i think fundamentally because of the nature of american yeah. capitalism i mean the last piece of news i heard about the bay area in general i, I saw this reel that got viral on Instagram about someone who decided to spend their free time creating an app where people can report when they see shit on the street. And like they showed a screenshot of the app and it's just full of brown dots, man. Like, no, I don't want to live in a place that's just covered in human feces. But what happened at this ceremony though that, that you kind of mentioned at the, at the beginning of, yeah, your your summary of, of, of your life since then? Yeah, well... <clears throat> I had a good wealth of experience with retreats and ceremonies by this time. I had sat with ayahuasca and San Pedro mushrooms in intentional ways after years of more random and sporadic use at festivals. But this was my first time going to the jungle to sit with the Hunikuan in Novo Futuro village at a festival called Escalata Kayaway, which has been happening yearly since I'd gone. I think I went to maybe the second one back in 2015 or 16. So you get to be with the indigenous Hunikuan in their village about a four-day boat ride from the closest third world city in Acre, Brazil, and literally live with them and experience their lifestyle and drink ayahuasca in their way with 200 other people from all ports of call around the world in their Maloka with them. So about a hundred plus, you know, aspirants from around the world and a, a hundred of them, different sides of the temple. Oh my God. And so you, you do that about eight to 10 time? times. Oh yeah. And we drank about eight to 10 times in the 14 days we were there. And I say eight to 10 because on the off days, the non like ceremony drinking days, you could just go into the Maloka and they're having more casual ayahuasca drinking as they just riff on the guitars and kind of slide water down shots around to people. So it doesn't take anyone to have a full, deep understanding of transference and counter-transference to understand how just wild that ceremony could possibly be with that much energy from people all over the world. And there wasn't even an intake to know where I was psycho-spiritually, which was a bad place. In fact, I would have rejected me knowing where I was at that point because I was already kind of going down into my depression and anxiety a bit because I had been had by my business partners and starting to like get lost and yeah, lose purpose and concern for myself. And while they were there, you know, you're in a good place. You're in the home of the, the medicine and everything is going well while you're there. It always seems that way. And then afterward, no integration, no support. You know, the Europeans or the Americans who recruited me and my cohort to come down just disappeared. I even reached out to them for support. Like, I'm having a hard time. You know, what should I do? Because I didn't know what I know now then. And there was nothing. I even went to the WhatsApp group for everyone there sharing my woes and my trials and a place where all the organizers and producers could see no help, none whatsoever. So... I was mishandled. This wasn't safe. And harm reduction is the name of the game right now. This is what integration is about, reducing harm through preparation. So 
wild is a beautiful experience to be in the jungle in the home of this medicine with some of the most skilled and revered indigenous people to do it there was something missing and it was incredibly dangerous and i almost lost my life because of it wow thanks for sharing i mean i yeah we'd never really spoken about this in in detail before i'm a little bit lost for words i guess do you want to just break down slightly what you were meaning about kind of energetic transference and and then go a little bit into yeah exactly how you were feeling and i'll just say one thing yeah. I, I suppose from an outsider looking in i i drank in the jungle once as well but we we just did like a private ceremony with a with a quechua shaman myself and my ex-girlfriend but yeah we we didn't know what integration was and i think it is somewhat in in the the way that we would perceive it a very western thing obviously right because integration for these people in indigenous communities is kind of just yeah staying in their community right. and just going yes. about going about their business right and yeah maybe like more medicine work true that's a good point and i will get to that so again i'm not a therapist i'm not a counselor i can't give you the deep nitty-gritty of kind of the transference and transference but to put simply is you know transference is when energy when the energetic experience of one body is transferred to another now in a clinical setting transference is from the client to the therapist kind of transference is the opposite therapist to the client and this is one-on-one -on -one, right and the level of transference of your energy your limiting beliefs your fears your doubts your joy your passion it can happen on any different level, whether, you know, think about it energetically, you know, someone could have a fear around um, a lack of like union in a, in a sexual or like relational way. So that comes from the lower chakras or someone might have a desire, say like a therapist for more money. And that comes from a higher chakra place and that gets put upon these people that they're working with. And they might work with them in a way that cajoles them into doing more work because they want money. That's like a simple idea of how these transferences work it's happening right now you know with you and i it's very uh diluted because you know we're virtual but if i were in person with you there'd be heavier transference the more sensitive you are the more you can notice it so imagine your sensitivity just blown into the cosmos with ayahuasca and you're around hundreds of other people with no familiarity no coherence no rapport no preparation through virtual circles, much less in person before you can get into the Moloka. And then we have a cultural rift between the indigenous and the Western. They don't know our ills and our trials. They don't understand depression and anxiety, OCD, ADHD, the list goes on and on. These aren't their issues. So all of that mixing into this, this, this cacophony, this, this miasma of pain and trauma and you got six elders running around blowing smoke for 200 people. I don't quite think that adds up. Granted, they're masterful, but A, they're masterful at handling their own people's issues. And they are integrated people. Tribes are naturally integrated, going back to your point. They know how to handle their ills and woes. They've been together for generations and generations. You bring us in without any sort of harmony and integration work to understand what we're working with and you said you know, to, in between not to butt in but yeah. i think it's crucial to mention like they didn't do any prep you you weren't like no one gave you a call and was like yo kyle like have you been, taking, you anti have right. been taking antidepressants like what's going on dude yeah. that kind of thing no no they didn't ask me what i was wanting to get out of it what my history was didn't look for any red flags whatsoever it was utterly irresponsible in hindsight. Then I didn't know. But then again, who I was then is who most people who are running to medicine work are. They don't so it know was better. like a kind of group of Americans who were like the in-between people. They were organizing it and, and like yep. bringing people to the Huni Quinn tribe. So it's possibly kind of their responsibility more. That's it. So that's what I'm getting at. See, it was their responsibility to understand whether or not we were fit for it. 
to support us while we were there, which they did to a degree, but most importantly, to hold us afterward and give us the skills and the support and the community to engage in our healing. And for some, the healing is the hard part. When you do that much medicine, your healing can look like depression and anxiety and suicidality because you have a lifetime of stuck energy, trauma, if you want to call it, breaking apart and moving through you. And that is not comfortable. We have diagnoses, again, depression, anxiety, so on and so forth. But it's really just an energetic purge. It's moving through us and it's not comfortable. And if you don't have the community or the skills or support in place to handle it, it makes things worse. It puts your life at risk. So, yeah, that's that's the problem, I think, in the world right now in the psychedelic movement, whether you call it a renaissance or a revolution, it's a mess. And I think this is one of the biggest problems that we need to address. And it's not a popular topic because you got a white man like myself talking about how the indigenous people are doing a poor job of handling us. And I get canceled and censored because I'm a colonist and I'm a grifter. And how dare I speak about this because I'm a white man living in Costa Rica. So going back to the MAPS conference recently, and there was a huge undertone of the indigenous feeling put aside and marginalized, and especially when they took over at the end with their protest. One of the things they said was that the future of this movement is indigenous. And I just, I just shook my head because it's the same bullshit narrative. It's not. It's about the harmony of coming together and knowing how to collaborate. You can't just take the indigenous ways and medicines and trot them around the world like rock star shamans and expect it to work. You need to understand the people you're working with, and they don't understand our problems yet. Yeah, and there was that with- really famous um, Colombian, I believe, ceremony where the chap went totally crazy, you know, three or four years ago and was attacking one guy as if he was going to kill him. So another guy claimed that he was basically forced to kill this guy so the dude that went crazy during the ceremony got killed by another attendee because he was potentially gonna kill multiple people if they'd have just let him run riot allegedly there you go the indigenous i i doubt they deal with that type of behavior yeah they haven't got like you know americans or canadians or even brits that are coming from are sorts of like pressure cooker style societies where people may be on a kind of cocktail of actually quite strong prescription drugs before you you even start talking about the illegal drugs they might be on. Yeah. Yeah. And and they interact with the same serotonin receptors as well. So yeah, folks, folks, yeah, really need, really need to be careful. Even, even with cacao. I mean, especially the more work you do and the more sensitive, aka normalized your system becomes. Yeah, that's a powerful medicine not to be trifled with. I did have some um, dark chocolate Brazil nuts today. That's been pretty much my only kind of like consciousness alterant. I've been mostly on the um, chicory, chicory beverage. It's kind of like nice. Chicory dandelion. Yeah. I was off coffee for many, many months, but being back in the States, I was drinking one a day, which is not a problem. You know, I've kicked most of my bad habits, like multiple uses of hape per day. I don't even like desire it anymore. But just to wrap up that last piece of discourse, integration, 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 everyone's talking about it. It's definitely like the elephant in the room. And when most people talk about it, they're talking about the individual integration, Right. You got to do this and this and that and that and get a morning practice or some kind of discipline to make sense of your psychedelic experience. And that is true. But also wrapped up in that narrative is a hyper focus on the individual, right? Again, going back to community, being the true healing power and force here. If you take the idea of community and integration and, and you look at what's happening in the world right now, the meta narrative of what's most important integration wise is the integration of Westerners and the indigenous, because we are doing this movement together. And if we're going to keep going at it to the throats, we're just going to get more of the same, more of the same. So I would love to see those Westerners who understand the challenges that we're going through. Just start a 
discourse, a dialogue with these indigenous shamans and medicine people and come up with a new offering. We need some sort of synthesis, a new way of doing ceremony while still honoring the traditions, but there has to be something new that's going to be born that is going to finally address our problems safely. Yeah. Only then will both sides truly grow and prosper. That's Um, community. That's unity. That's healing. And, you know, if you hadn't have been there to offer this integration service to me, I, yeah, I mean, it was crucial. I think we did, we did about six sessions and the main, the main thing that kind of stuck with me was the gratitude journaling suggestion. I, I still do that you know, now and then, I mean, I go through phases, sometimes, sometimes I do it like every day. And yeah, other times, I'm slacking a little bit. But yeah, still say, thanks before eating, and just close my eyes. And yeah, either say something or think to myself, like, yeah, what I what I'm particularly grateful for. And yeah, that was a that was a great help. When when did you start like offering integration um, coaching to some of some of these retreats? (sighs) You know, it it came on pretty quickly after I graduated from being true to you, the group that I trained with. I would say like within a year of graduating, which is when I came to Costa Rica and moved in, settled in here, I invested more in myself than ever, took some courses in like how to be a coach, which was mostly about understanding yourself and building the confidence to put yourself out there, some small business acumen. But during that same time, being true to you is developing powerful partnerships and alliances with clinics, ketamine clinics and ibogaine clinics in the States and in Mexico. And as one of their trained coaches who stayed around and worked with them, I was chosen to be on their ketamine pod and their ibogaine pod. So the clients who would go to these retreat centers they partnered with would be paired up with a coach who was most appropriate for them. And that's a really important thing to note, right? Because with classic counseling and therapy, people don't often get paired with the right person. And that's a really important part of doing any sort of helper work. That's where we are, we're helpers. So, you know, I was paired with you because the person at being true to you, who is doing their best to understand who you were and understands me well, was like, these two will likely do some good work together. Amazing. Yeah, both got a bit of stubble, long hair, although yours is pulled back into kind of bun. Um right. yeah, both both white men. I'm I'm a bit taller than you, but you're also a strapping male. Um surprisingly tall when I first met you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone everyone says that, but I'm just like, well, I wasn't concealing anything. I guess who does look tall on Twitter? You don't look tall on Zoom right? ever. No one does. <laughs> <laughs> no one does. No. I guess like but yeah, that's how I got Stephen my Marchant. Stephen Marchant, the writer, he he co-wrote The Office, the UK Office, and then he was like produced on the US Office. No, he looks tall because he's got like a kind of longer kind of face. Hmm. Yeah, I can do it. The face is a map of the body, anyway. So something about that. It's funny you mentioned that too because I'm. I'm doing a face reading workshop this weekend. I'm going to merge that into my coaching. Apparently, you can tell many things about people by facets of their face. It's like a microcosm of the body and the energetic composition. Anyway, oh, wow. yeah, that's how that's how I started. Being true to you is such an amazing, amazing group of people. And not to plug them, but I've been keeping my my senses peeled and paying attention to so many integration coaching offerings out there. And there, there really aren't many that are so comprehensive as, as they are. Like they started with addiction coaching, understanding how to work with people with deep addictions and how to support them and moving through that. So everyone who goes to them for integration coaching gets a deep background in understanding addiction itself. And I think that's so important because regardless of what's going on in your life, anyone who's coming to work with themselves has some sort of addiction. It's not always a capital A addiction for food, drugs, sex, alcohol, et cetera, but we have these control patterns, you know, behaviors, image, screens, people. We have these attachments and that's important to understand 
how consciousness creates these dynamics. Without that, you're just kind of going through a script and, and being a bit of a talking head. But God, they're such a fantastic community. I can't recommend them more. Yeah. And um, I still work with them. Yeah. And a lot of people who are coming from the Ibogaine experiences will have had some sort of drug dependency, right? What What's it like without revealing any details working with some of these people? Honestly, I haven't been doing much work with Ibogaine shortly after we worked together, um, just because there haven't been many clients coming in from that particular client. It's mostly been ketamine, but I will say that, yes, those who go to Ibogaine tend to be working with much deeper, heavier issues than those who go to ketamine, generally speaking, not always. And it requires a deeper acumen of understanding addiction, 100%. So that's probably why they paired us together. They they knew that I was just, you know, working through some, yeah, typical male, psycho-spiritual, late 20s kind of, yeah, occasional malaise, but, you yeah. know, pretty pretty much okay not but still what we would call still clients quite like you sabotaging yeah generally you would have been put into the bucket of like our internal you know coaching client matching speak of a psycho spiritual development you're in the game of refining yourself you're highly functional but you're also aware of places where you got blind spots and you could be better some people are addled by their addictions and, you know, they're a very different lot to work with. Totally. And, and some of the exercises I remember doing, you were trying to get me to focus really on what were my goals. But then we, we did some quite trippy, yeah, exercises, as I say, where I was sort of visualizing them and I'm trying to recall like, identifying the, the feeling the feelings and sensations that would that would come up yeah. and the thoughts when i visualized or, or this thing came to mind and then it was about you on one hand kind of trying to strip away the noise around that and bring it straight to the essence and be yeah trying to i don't know um get me to more closely associate whatever sense or feeling Yes. the trigger for thinking about i don't know this goal or something you, you'll be able to explain it better than i yeah i i love to employ that process whenever it comes up and when i like to use that is when there is a powerful emotion present usually sadness so what we did is you know a simple somatic meditation where i invite a client who is having a powerful experience to focus all their attention and energy on that feeling. And before I go into the why, the reason why we do that is because to use an old adage in this work, like energy flows where the attention goes. So why would you want your energy to go into the sadness? Well, I like to use the analogy of a crying baby. So, Baby's upset, it's crying, it's sad. Mama picks it up, bounces it in her arms, speaks adorably to it, shows it love, shows it attention without knowing what's wrong. And usually baby stops crying, gets a little better, right? The child. And then we talk about inner child work in this work. So when you're in pain, it's a part of you that's been frozen in time in the past that experienced some pain, some trauma maybe, and it's being triggered in the present. But that part of you is still young. So if you want to understand what's going on, not about knowing, understanding, let go of needing to know, spend some time with that inner child and simply show it love. So the best way we can do that as far as we know right now is to close your eyes and put all your attention there. So that's like the base concept. And then you're working with the body which doesn't speak in English, but it, it gives us messages. And the more attention we give it, and the more we get curious about where that feeling lives and how you might describe characteristics like temperature, shape, sensation, weight, you start to give it life. 
you start to develop a richer relationship with this part of you. And like this dovetails into parts work, which is so popular right now for these very reasons. This gives you a whole practice around getting to know aspects of yourself. And I tell you, if you bring that sort of attention, that sort of um, process into your meditations, or if you engage with that, even for a matter of minutes, every time you feel triggered, you will notice great strides in your ability to soothe yourself, your ability to choose a response when you feel triggered, become more response able because you're more aware of what's going on. You're not reactionary. You know, you're not flying off the handle and hurting others because you're hurt. Yeah, I've, I found this stuff really, really beneficial. And it's something that you just can't get in a sharing circle on the Sunday after a weekend retreat or even in True. subsequent kind of group integration sessions. So why are some retreats that charge several thousand dollars if not more per person not routinely including one-on-one -on -one integration i mean i i, I know one that, that charges like six seven thousand and it's like a group integration and it was three or four weeks that that seemed yeah kind of crazy to me i don't know for sure but i would say it's a combination of ignorance and greed Probably more ignorance than greed. So honestly, most people don't know how important this work is, that the education, the integration, the development of community, the development of a relationship with your clients for the long term and teaching them how to care for themselves is the most important part. You want to take the popular model of Pareto, 80%, 20%, 80% is that. 20% at most is showing up and taking the medicine. I would say that's being generous and there's greed. There's a lot of money to be made here. The world is in great dire straits. People are in a lot of pain. This is a dark age and they are just clamoring for healing in whatever form they can find. So it's become a capitalistic pursuit now. And I, I could just rattle off you know, all sorts of names and places that are harming people, but you know, I'm not here to do that right now. So what can folks do, I guess, to make sure they're making the right choice? I know that you you serve medicine on one luxury retreat in Jamaica. Folks, I guess, leave reviews on Retreat Guru and word of mouth. Right. People know who's good, who's not. And yeah, what, what other avenues are there for people to figure out what's the right decision for them? It's a matter of knowing what to look for. So if you're about to work with somebody that doesn't even send you an intake, red flag, just run the other way, right? You also want to look at what their background, what their training is. If they're not offering you any information about who they are, what they've done, you know, what their personal medicine is, because anyone can serve mushrooms, but me serving mushrooms is different than you serving mushrooms, not just because of skill or background or experience, but like, what am I bringing to the table? Again, with the transference, I have a certain style. I have a certain energetic signature. If someone can't explain to you what their personal gift is, what their medicine is, I also turn the other way because that's a lack of awareness. And then there's size. You know, you don't want to be sitting in a, a room with a 10, 20, 30 strangers. I think the safest number for this work is like four to six people that know each other either already or they learn to know each other through weeks of preparation, coaching and circle, whether it's virtual or online. What else can I say about that? Yeah, For, for all medicines, would you say, or, or specifically mushrooms, these small groups that have had some prep time together? Oh, can you say that again? Sorry, it's starting to rain here. I got to turn you up. Yeah, no worries. The rain gets pretty torrential down there. I, I just asked, like, would you say these smaller groups you recommend just for mushrooms or for other or all psychedelics? All psychedelics. Yeah, right now, 
it's too risky to be in big groups. Again, we are detribalized people. I believe one of the results of doing this work well is that we will hopefully come back into tribal communities, but you don't want to roll the dice with a dozen or people from all the ports of call around the world, bringing in absolute lifetimes of different energy than you. It's a lot. If you can find someone to work one-on-one -on -one with, that's my preference. I'll work with people one-on-one -on -one for a while separately and then bring them together in group containers after you know a, a year or so. And then these men hopefully create some bond between themselves and they can support each other through the rest of their days or whatever their journeys are. I don't recommend any popular retreat center. There are a few that are doing it well. You mentioned evolution retreats. Yeah, I work with them. They do work out of Jamaica and they're unusual because they spend weeks, hours with their small groups before doing any work in the retreat center with the medicine. Each facilitator like myself gets three or four people to work with on site. That's how big the groups are, three to four people. And they match those groups based upon familiarity and based upon similarity of what they're going through, what their life is, who they are. And there are weeks of integration afterward. And throughout the week, we're sitting down every morning talking about what's going on, engaging in yoga, meditation, breath work, teaching them how to take care of themselves. This is so incredibly rare that it's, it's a travesty almost that this is the exception to the rule where it ought to be how we all do it. Yeah, I know that some people, though, are a bit skeptical about the one-on-one -on -one stuff because there's obviously more scope for potential abuse or indeed, you know, transference, I guess, if if it's such a close one-on-one -on -one sort of thing. But I see the other side as well, maybe not to one-on-one, -on -one, but the the argument for smaller groups. I was once in this ayahuasca ceremony and, and this poor Irish girl just went totally crazy. And it was like some kind of demon or 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 yeah devil or something was coming to the surface and she was just screaming and babbling for like five ten minutes and yeah it was a really strong experience for me at least never mind her but there was no real helpers the people serving the medicine were the musicians so this couple who were seemingly the most experienced of everyone there took her out uh, but they were already like yeah, totally with the medicine. So it was a bit of a mess, really. And it was a big distraction for everyone, not least me, for at least an hour and kind of interrupted the the process I was in. But then people are like, well, you know, it's all about the group, group healing. you got to you know, hold space for the group. And that's just how life is in and out of ceremony. That would be one thing, again, if you were all from the same tribe, entirely different thing, not knowing who that person is, you probably can't even tell to this day whether that experience was useful or not because there's so many variables at play, right? Yeah. We can weave whatever story we want. And one of the best things we can do is tell a good story. You know, okay, maybe you learned something from that. Well, we'll stick to that. And I'm sure you did. And because you have skills and tools for self-care and regulation, you probably made some lemonade out of those lemons. Most people don't have that level of experience that you do and the training that you do. So yeah, I'm grateful that you were able to make use of that, but that's the kind of thing that happens more often than not. And it can dysregulate most people. It can cause re-traumatization. You know? It could cause psychotic breaks sometimes. This is possible in ceremony. People can become much worse off easily, especially with ayahuasca. Sure. So what do you make, though, of the criticism among some of the one-on-one -on -one psychedelic work? Uh, criticism is well-founded because it takes a great degree of care to do that work well. When you're going to work one-on-one -on -one with someone, it necessitates you putting in a lot of time to get to know that person and to develop rapport and to develop trust. And this can take weeks, if not months. 
And I have found that that sort of care is incredibly rare. I find myself lucky to be surrounded by many people who do work that way. But again, it is not the norm. It is the exception. Yeah. And as a practitioner that works that way, you really need to take immaculate care of yourself. Because yeah, when it's one-on-one, -on -one, the transference of energies is so much more palpable and it's clear. It's just two people. So whatever you're feeling is either your own stuff or it's something that's being projected onto you. And you got to be prepared to have the conversations about what's coming up and be honest if something is discerned and spoken to and you're like, shit, yeah, that was me. Like you got to be high degree of integrity and accountability. And above all, know how to say no to a client. And as a client, know how to say no to a would-be guide. In fact, it's important to learn to say no. You ought to be saying no a lot more than you say yes when it comes to this work. I saw that this psychedelic concierge, Zappy Zappelin, I think is his name. Forgive me if I get it wrong. He was doing some one-on-one -on -one work with Jordan Belford of Wolf of Wall Street fame. They did some ketamine sessions together. I, I'm not familiar with these names. So you haven't seen the Wolf of Wall Street, dude. I've seen the Wolf of Wall Street, but I, I don't. You know, know Leonardo DiCaprio's character. Sure, yeah. So he ended up serving, I think, only about a year and a half in jail on those kind of fraud charges. Uh, and since he's come out, he's got into, yeah, psychedelics for healing. And yeah, did some one-on-one -on -one sessions with this quite well-known psychedelic guide slash concierge. And that it was in the news yesterday. So the character that Leonardo DiCaprio is playing, that's who you're talking about? Yeah. Although I wouldn't I didn't realize it was based on a true story. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So he's working with a, a psychedelic concierge. That's quite the brand. And now it's making news. Well, if it's working, good. Ketamine is a wonderful psychedelic for first timers, for sure. Um yeah, a big fan piece of it. Bloomberg recently saying that there might be the first workplace retreats so instead of getting drunk or going and doing paintballing together there's yeah the possibility of just getting ketty which might be better actually at forming some kind of group bond yeah. with the paintballing stuff if you get someone else in the eye i mean it's just kind of possibly just encouraging division between the two groups yeah it's interesting to see where ketamine therapy can so quickly be going. Of course, it's sensible that it would move into already established group healing spaces like corporate retreats. Yeah, I could see that being helpful. You know, ketamine isn't a very complex medicine. It doesn't bring up a lot of nuanced material. It's, I call it like the, hey, it's okay medicine. It brings a sense of ease and equanimity so yeah, power to those people for wanting to do that and to get closer to their colleagues in, in a safe setting. Sure beats getting drunk and going to a rage room and smashing computers. Yeah, exactly. I, I had this story um, come out yesterday about CEOs that are, that are doing that. Yeah. psychedelics. Yeah, because obviously it's been a long known thing about Silicon Valley workers microdosing and even recently Elon Musk doing some ketamine for his mental health. But the idea of CEOs going full tilt into ceremonies with, as we were discussing earlier, ayahuasca or or bufo is a whole, whole another and much deeper kind of thing, right? Yeah. You know, there's a lot of focus in the guide community for doing deep one-on-one -on -one work with CEOs and other influential thought leaders and um you know, public figures. And I see the merit in that because it can be the catalyst for a powerful trickle down effect, right? If that changes the whole culture of an entire workforce, good. And the dark side of that is it's, it's alluring for many guides to focus all their work on ultra privileged white people when hoping that's going to be the most powerful work to do because they get paid a lot more too. And truth be told, a lot of people do this work. You know, we don't live extravagant lives. In fact, if you if you're chasing money, 
it's almost like an unholy union of like oil and water, like capitalism and spirit. Like you just get pounded, you man, you know, I live a very humble life and I do have aspirations to do bigger work, but I find that whenever I start chasing the money, uh, I get put down pretty quickly. So I get to, I've, I've had the, the, the privilege of working with some people who have uh, quite a bit of influence and I take those opportunities when they come, but I wouldn't dare try to capitalize on that and try to make that my modus operandi. It doesn't seem right. So what's been your most significant psychedelic experience? Apart from, I suppose, this ceremony or set of ceremonies you mentioned before, perhaps I could say, in fact, your most positive, uh, positive and defining psychedelic experience. Most positive. I like that. Because, <laughs> yeah, that was really the game changer. And I consider myself lucky that what transpired for me in the Amazon ended up with me being here today, living my life's purpose. And it oh, certainly the, the wasn't good, the good part of a bad trip, they call it. Yeah, but I wouldn't credit them for it. It was the people around me in my community that ushered me into wholeness. They did the easy part. So... The most positive experience I've had on psychedelics was, surprise, surprise, a really well-facilitated 5-MeO-DMT journey. Nothing quite beats meeting God or whatever you call it and knowing that it is love. It changes your perspective on all of life forever after, honestly. There's been a lightness to life since that, knowing the truth behind it all really helps me kick my feet up at times and just have a laugh at what's going on to not take things too seriously. And you can't say much more than that. You know, I could go into a longer story about what it felt like and how it transpired, but that medicine is unparalleled. And in that, I can see why it's so popular right now, really hitting the limelight. And it draws a lot of darkness. Some of the people holding that medicine are some of the most dark and menacing and dangerous people I have ever met. And have done so much damage to some people. These communities out here in the jungle, you see a lot of the mess going on with the mavericks in the world, the rogues. So I find myself really grateful to be like aligned with people holding that medicine in a good way. In fact, I'm I'm meeting up with some people I consider to be, you know, forerunners in the education, facilitation, and um training in this medicine down at Tendapa retreats, Joel Breer and Victoria Wushner, just to throw out some good names. Yeah. Um, I'm on their, their cast of characters as integration coaches. I'm going to visit them for the first time at Tendava at the end of August. I'm very excited about it because this is an important medicine in the world right now. And it's important to be allied with people who are doing it in a good way. For sure. Yeah, when you were saying about what has been your most positive experience, yeah, the first thing that came up was, yeah, the the first ceremony that I did with Joel and Victoria. Maybe that's a story I can I can tell another day. But I would love to, to get back on for that. Yeah, just to like close close things off for today. Um, you said when you smoked the five, there was a kind of epiphany or or something about the nature of life yeah and to be fair it was my second time the first time was kind of a let's say black wash you know it was a void experience which was still helpful but the second time something got right and it was a participating a participatory experience with life itself consciousness and I felt myself as a moat of consciousness in the sea of consciousness. That is to say, all of life. And it looked like so much of the visionary art out there, you know, the sacred geometry swirls of whites and blues and yellows. And it, it felt like love. Everything felt like love. And I knew I was experiencing the connection of all life. We talk about how we're all one. Look. I was able to dissolve into the experience of that. And what I really appreciate is as I was slowly coming back from that experience, coming back into my filters of senses, I was able to feel that connection with the people in the circle around me. Like 
no word of a lie. I was able to read their thoughts. And I confirmed it afterwards. I was looking out the window of my living room to a bird on a tree branch, a good 20 yards away. And I could like hear it moving, like superhuman senses, psychic abilities, just a bit of a an affirmation of, I don't know if what's possible as humans, but that little in-between, between the mundane living and my senses as they kind of are, and being in that, the cosmic ocean of love and consciousness that I understood to be, you know, God consciousness in a way. And I get that little in-between experience. And that was important for me, for whatever it's worth, just kind of bridge those extremes. But you don't forget that, you know, to live is this. And to have an experience with 5-MAO, I think, is the ultimate experience of not this, of being on the other side because it emulates death as far as we know you can have ego death with other psychedelics but i feel like there's something special about the five meo ego death in that it's it doesn't carry these subconscious egoic complexities you know i think lsd and mushrooms and other psychedelics spring up you know you're working with a molecule that simulates death as far as we know and brings you straight to the source yeah no dilly no dally with with the ego it's just boom gone although maybe yeah, that's yeah. 15 20 seconds of intense fear the wrestling like yeah. like yeah the wrestling which likely comes from the ego not not wanting to die and be irrelevant True. well yeah on that note we'll bid each other goodbye for now yeah excellent conversation thank you for having me on Matha. let's do it again oh. sometime <laughs>